Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A shock survey reveals the pandemic's devastating impact on architecture students. New York's Seldorf architects picked to rethink London's National Gallery. Parliament's Climate Change Committee backs retrofitting over demolition, and irreversible construction sees Liverpool stripped of its world heritage status. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My special guest this week is Will Ing. Will is reporter for the Architects Journal, the AJ. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Our first item is all to do with the results of the AJ's 2021 student survey, which has highlighted the devastating impact of the pandemic on people studying architecture. Continual lockdowns and almost exclusive remote working have left people in the midst of their architectural education feeling abandoned, lonely and under immense pressure, the survey found. Furthermore, the number of students saying they have or are seeking help for their mental health is the highest since the question was first included in the survey. Of the nearly 400 respondents, a worryingly high 45% said they were either currently receiving treatment for mental health related issues or stress or had done so in the past. The number of students facing mental health challenges has almost doubled since 2016. Asked whether their university offered them enough mental health support, the responses were almost exactly split down the middle. While 34% said their university had been good, 36% said the opposite. One student told the AJ, We had little contact with anyone, little guidance, little anything. The revelations are shocking and raise serious questions about the future appeal of architectural education, which can cost many tens of thousands of pounds and yet still offers poor job prospects. Data shows that for most respondents, it was the lack of mixing with other students, followed by the lack of studio access, the quality of remote teaching and stress of deadlines, which proved most challenging. This left nearly half of all UK students surveyed describing the past 15 months of education as quite hard and 30% finding it really hard. And what is even more concerning is that despite the shift online, architecture students continue to report prejudice in its various forms. 
More than a third of female respondents said they had experienced some discrimination in terms of gender. And shockingly, more than two in five black, Asian and minority ethnic respondents said they had been discriminated against, with 11% saying they experienced it often or very often. So, Will, just about everyone has suffered enormously throughout this pandemic. However, the effects on young people have been largely overlooked. And it's only really in extreme instances where the plight of those studying at schools and universities have really taken the spotlight. These shocking findings from the AJ survey provide some insight into the extent to which architecture students have been impacted, particularly with regards to their mental health which, to be frank, was already pushed to its limits at architecture school even before COVID-19. What is it about the way universities run architecture courses across the country that has seen so many students let down so brutally just at the time where those they are looking to for an education could have stepped up to help them? You're right to kind of highlight the fact that the effects on young people have been largely overlooked. I think when we talk about the pandemic, we uh, as a kind of unprecedented medical crisis. We talk about it in terms of, understandably, the thousands of people who have died and millions who have suffered at home and so forth. But there is this kind of secondary problem of mental health. Um, and I think, you know, students obviously have, by and large, the least to worry about physically from the virus. But I would argue that as groups go, that they're one of the ones that are kind of the most affected um, in terms of mental health. The reason for that is because the university life has been upended. So as you kind of alluded to, students are not able to go out. Uh, they're not able to mix with new people and meet other students. They're often alone uh, in a small unit, perhaps in quite a hostile commercial student housing block, maybe in a city far away from their friends or family. Um, so 40% of the students we surveyed said isolation was the hardest thing about the last 12 months uh, and that's quite easy to understand but it's not just this right so their education again as you said they pay a lot of a lot of money for this nine thousand pounds if you're from the uk or ireland more if you're from abroad um, but their education's got worse so 20 percent of those surveyed said this was the hardest thing about the last 12 months that the lack of studio time in particular um, but 13% said it was just the quality of remote teaching over Zoom or Teams or whatever it was. Um, so that's everything they do, really. You know, they can't leave the house. Their education's worse. So they're, they're quite kind of physically trapped over the last past year. We found another issue as well, um, which is that 17% of students said their workload had gone up significantly. And a further 27% said their workload had also gone up, maybe more slightly. Um, so on the one hand, I guess workloads do tend to increase as students go through university, but it, it sort of seems like universities have addressed the lack of contact teaching hours with just more work, assuming that students have more time to do it. And we heard some really, really alarming stories about students who are alone, in pokey rooms, nowhere near their friends, just grinding themselves in the dust over their coursework. So no wonder there's a mental health crisis. And I really hope now that universities can open up as quickly as possible instead of continuing online learning, which, let's be honest, actually might be quite kind of beneficial for their business models sometimes.
Sadly, even before the pandemic, life at architecture school has not been without its severe troubles. And back in May, an investigation by The Guardian reported on complaints of racism and sexism by former students at the prestigious UCL Bartlett School of Architecture. Will, you're currently working on an upcoming, soon-to-be-published feature for the AJ investigating these claims. Perhaps you could talk us through your work on this feature, what you discovered, and why what has been reported to be going on at the Bartlett could well be the tip of the iceberg for architecture education in general. Okay, let's start with the Bartlett. I started investigating problems with kind of discrimination at the school following the Guardian piece you alluded to. Um, the Bartlett, for people who don't know, is part of the University College London or UCL. Uh, it's widely revered as the UK's top architecture school. It's very prestigious. Um, but what I found was alarming. The article I've written is built on the back of more than 15 interviews with students and former students, a lot of whom have really suffered with mental health problems during and after their time at the Bartlett as a result of what they allege is very serious bullying by teachers at the architecture school. Um, I've heard about students being pushed to the extremes, working incredibly long hours in the studio, 12, 15, even 18 hour days. Uh, and they're made to feel worthless if they can't keep up. You know, they're being asked why they're lazy at tutorials. They're being told their drawings are shit in front of 40 people at a crit. You know, they're being suggested uh, that, that they should just drop out or, or change course. Um, uh, at least these, this is kind of what they are alleging. So, and some of these problems, again, as you sort of reference, are, are sexist or racist in nature. So I heard accounts of an Arab student being asked if they're related to Zaha Hadid and told Zaha's work is rubbish. Um, I was told by you know, a female student that at a crit she was told she couldn't really have feedback because her top was too distracting. Um, I had another case of a female student being told that their work is sexy and, and so are they. Um, and actually I've heard worse stuff than that as well. So I do encourage people to read the piece when it comes out online on Friday. UCL, I should just add, said it is deeply troubled by these reports. It said it's all too aware that unacceptable behaviour exists in the Bartlett and it has pledged to investigate all recent reports of bullying at the school. And it has also vowed to appoint an external agency to investigate the culture at the Bartlett. Earlier this year, AJ ran an investigation into the troubling pay and conditions faced by architecture assistants in the early days of their careers. Now we're hearing a whole different but equally unpleasant set of challenges faced by architectural students. What does this mean for the architectural industry and our built environments if so many people at the start of their career path are suffering? And how could this also set back the cause of boosting diversity in these fields? We need a diverse built environment that considers and reflects how people from all walks of life uh, view and use cities and buildings, right? Architecture has a problem with diversity. We know that. Uh, we don't know exactly what the problem looks like because we don't have great statistics on it. 68% of architects provide the ARB with personal details relating to equality, diversity and inclusion. If you are an architect and you're not among that group, I'd urge you to sign up so we have better data on the, on the stats. Uh, but it is already hard to become an architect, so you require three degrees, the first two of which will require kind of maintenance fees while you're studying. 
if it's becoming even more difficult, if, if you're having to work really long hours, then if you're a carer, then you're going to struggle to keep up on an architecture course or, you know, in as a assistant architect working in practice. If you're not paid properly, then people from lower income backgrounds who are more reliant on their salary to whatever, feed their children, pay their rent. They'll just go and work in another industry that pays more, treats them better, um, isn't as gruelling. So this is why it's important. What can students do to fight back? I would say organise, you know, join together, join a union, articulate your demands and hand them to universities. Make a noise. Another recent survey, this time by the Future Architects Front, found that an overwhelming 93% of respondents felt that architecture education needed a shake-up. Well, what's your opinion on this? Do universities really need to change how they teach architecture? And if so, in what respects should this be done? Yeah, this is interesting. So the Architects Registration Board, that is the kind of architects regulator, is looking into this. My understanding is they're going to launch a consultation very soon on proposed changes to the kind of uh, meta framework, if you like, of architectural education. Uh, so I personally would like to see different options for people wanting to be architects. Already we have architectural apprenticeships, which started around three years ago and are getting a kind of more diverse cohort into the industry. But I think it's time to think about an architecture conversion course um, and maybe to ask whether we still really need part one, part two and part three. If architects, and they are, uh, you know, are going to have to learn more on the job um, and make sure they update their skills, then could some of the curriculum be eased? I think it could. Our next item was reported in the AJ. It's the announcement that a team led by New York-based Seldorf Architects has won the contest to upgrade the National Gallery's Grade 1 listed Sainsbury Wing. Working with Purcell and Voigt Landscape Architects, the US studio beat Asif Khan with AKT2, Crusoe Sinjin with Muff Architecture Art, David Chipperfield Architects, David Conn Architects and Witherford Watson Mann Architects. The search, organised by Malcolm Redding Consultants, saw a multidisciplinary team to vastly improve the welcome experience at the landmark building overlooking Trafalgar Square, which was completed by Robert Venturi, Denise Scott Brown and Associates in 1991 and now serves as the gallery's main entrance. The phased £25 to £30 million project time to mark the gallery's bicentenary in 2024, will remodel the Sainsbury Wing's front gates, ground floor entrance sequence, lobby and first floor spaces. It will also create a research centre within the nearby west wing of the main Wilkins building and deliver a series of public realm upgrades to enhance the gallery's presence in Trafalgar Square. Once described as the go-to architect for major art destinations, Seldorf Architects has worked on numerous previous gallery projects, including prestigious venues for David Zwerner, Hausen and Wirth and Thaddeus Ropak. Justifying their appointment, National Gallery Director Gabrielle Finaldi said, Throughout the selection process, Seldorf Architects demonstrated a real understanding of our ambitions, as well as sensitivity to the heritage of our existing buildings. Seldorf Architects will now work with the National Gallery team to refine its concept. Annabel Seldorf, who heads the 65 Strong Practice, said, Our team will work sensitively and thoughtfully with the National Gallery, guided by their vision for a gallery of the future that is inspiring, sustainable and truly inclusive. What do you make of the choice to go for a US-based practice-led team rather than a UK firm? 
Uh, Finaldi, he said, quote, the next five years will be pivotal in fighting our way out of the crisis of COVID-19. We recognise the catastrophic impact this has had on so many and particularly on arts and cultural institutions. What do you think of the argument that the National Gallery should have possibly instead offered this important commission to a team with more on the ground local experience of how the pandemic and also major social and cultural shifts, including Black Lives Matter, uh, are reshaping our interaction with prominent cultural spaces like these. And do you think the move may well have been influenced by the fallout from the 1980s contest, which saw ABK's winning concept shelved after an intervention by the Prince of Wales and replaced with a new design by Robert Venturi and Denise Scott-Brown? Architects should be close to their clients. I think good architecture is produced by architects who, you know, not only understand the brief, but also understand their clients' needs you know, why a building will be important, what value it can produce. So I do buy into the notion that architects should be like, like their clients. And that's why diversity is important. With regard to this particular case, I can't help wondering whether Seldorf Architects and the National Gallery aren't actually so different. So sure, the gallery is in the UK and it's called the National Gallery. And Seldorf Architects was the only American practice on there or the only non-UK practice. But fundamentally, the National Gallery is an international institution, and I would guess a great proportion of its visitors are tourists. Um, Seldorf comes from the US, but it works all around the world uh, and in America's cosmopolitan centres like New York. And it's produced a lot of kind of architecturally interesting, but possibly quite sort of muted buildings. Um, so I think maybe it's a good fit. What the National Gallery seems to have wanted and what I think Seldorf can deliver is something that is sensitive, that is, I quote, you know, thoughtful, something that is modern, but it's probably happy being part of a grand old building. And frankly, something that's maybe a bit boring, that but won't, won't cause a controversy, as the National Gallery's had in the past, and won't kind of kick up a fuss in the planning um, process. So I would have definitely been more excited about a sort of wildly creative, diverse, young team from the UK winning the commission. But uh, maybe I'm missing the point, but I I'm not too upset. I'd kind of almost be more upset by a big corporate kind of toss them out UK practice designing an art gallery in a smaller UK city. And uh, just one more point on that, Merlin. I think if you're suggesting that prestigious UK buildings should be built by UK architects, then we really need to reflect on the fact that UK is by a long, long way a net exporter of architectural services. So I looked up the figures, UK's biggest practice, Foster and Partners, it earned just 7% of its revenue of all the money, hundreds of millions of pounds, just 7% was earned in the UK. Zaha Hadid Architects, the third biggest practice in the UK, earned just 1.3% of its money on these shores. So, you know, if we're thinking about local architects uh, not getting the commission, we've got to think about all the local architects around the world which are being deprived chances to build cultural centres because Fosses and Zahas are sweeping into town. Well, that is a really, really, really good point. Um, but it makes me think, you know, big international competitions like these, even where there isn't a significant design element, uh, are a significant draw on practices resources, with many architects and many architectural assistants often taking on significant amounts of overtime to get submissions ready in time. Uh, part of what drives this effort forward is the belief that competitions offer a chance for new and emerging talents to make their names and deliver important cultural commissions. Um, firms like Asif Khan and David Cohn, 
shortlisted in this contest have yet to design a really major cultural institution here in London. Um, and yet in the end, the top prize went to a firm already known as the, quote, go-to architect for major art destinations. Um, what does this say about the state of procurement here in London and the National Gallery itself as a client? Uh, and when it comes to the project itself, what could it then mean for, for Londoners and all the people and the many international visitors who will go to these gallery spaces in the future? OK, um, just quickly, I reckon Asif Khan has designed a major cultural centre in the Museum of London. Uh, which, of course, it designed with Sansom Williams and is under construction. Um, procurement doesn't work. We know that. The Grenfell Towers demonstrated that. I suppose we think of broken procurement as people cutting corners, um, safety work not being done properly, uh, firms bidding ridiculously small amounts to win work. Uh, but I guess the point you're making is that all too often it ignores other forms of value, like social value picking you know young architects and diverse architects um, so yes it is broken I guess maybe the biggest shame here is not that Seldorf won it but that they didn't win it with someone else as well if you just said big architects that apply for schemes have to work with smaller local architects then this wouldn't be a problem you'd, you'd always have that kind of diversity of thought and you'd always be bringing architects up um, on competitions Yes, I agree, they can be very exploitative. Uh, so maybe actually if you paired small and big architects together, you could just invite people for a competition, you know, quite a small one, and pay them properly uh, and, get, and get rid of some of that kind of labour. Just for reference, um, Seldorf is working with Purcell and Voigt Landscape Architects, although both are quite big established companies in their fields. Our third story was covered in the AJ. It's all to do with the news that the chair of the Climate Change Committee has publicly backed the magazine's retro first demands. John Gummer, who oversees the statutory climate change body and was environment secretary between 1993 and 1997, appeared before the Environmental Audit Committee, where he echoed the three key policy proposals at the core of AJ's ongoing campaign to drastically reduce demolition. Calling upon the government, Gummer criticised the long-entrenched VAT discrepancy whereby retrofit construction work, allowing existing buildings to be sensitively upgraded and reused, is taxed considerably higher than projects involving demolition. He also urged government to use its own procurement purchasing power, estimated to be worth around £284 billion a year in normal times, to promote building reuse and to also use new planning rules to disincentivize the process of demolition and rebuild, which is so common. Gummer also pointed out that the government was not leading on promoting the reuse rather than demolition of existing buildings, but that it should be, adding that instead of procuring new buildings, it should seek to improve old buildings, therefore making a contribution to the future of the nation and setting an example. He also called attention to the current planning laws, which he says do essentially nothing to encourage local authorities to make the right environmental choices, saying that under current planning law, we can't reach net zero. Gummer furthermore expressed concern that the government had not recognised the importance of embodied carbon in its future homes standard, referencing 2015 when the government scrapped its zero carb carbon homes plan, he said... 
there are a million homes which have been built since the government at the time reversed the policy on carbon zero houses. A million houses, Gummer said, all of which will have to be retrofitted. And that means the house builder has passed the cost of this change onto the person who has bought the house, he concluded. Will, you wrote this article for the AJ. What did you make of John Gummer's remarks? Nigel Topping, the UN's champion for the upcoming COP26 climate conference, commented that, quote, architecture is one of the least well-represented businesses in the race to zero global campaign. Should the government, as Gummer suggests, be making the industry's pledge to reduce its carbon footprint compulsory by law? And what might this look like? So I was surprised and pleased to hear Gummer make these remarks. Um, his words are a sign that not just the AJ campaign, but really the kind of mainstream view of architects, I think, is finally beginning to cut through in the halls of power. Should the government make the industry's pledge to reduce its carbon footprint compulsory? Yes, absolutely, and obviously it should. The government has already enshrined its commitment to reach net zero by 2050. So why on earth wouldn't you enshrine the laws which we will actually need um, to get us there? And by the way, some developers and as well as a kind of a great deal of architects are into this stuff, right? Um, some developers would love to reuse buildings and reduce embodied carbons through the material choice, create energy efficiency through, you know, their designs and better specifications. Architects in particular would love to, as we know. But until the standard is a legal requirement, there will always be other companies that are willing to do the bare minimum on sustainability and undercut companies who are investing in it. So that's why it matters. So also this week, uh, there was a powerful business coalition. Their members range from like consultants like Chapman Taylor, BDSP, WSP, Ramble, uh, to other things like IKEA, Lloyds Banking Group and Octopus Energy. And what they did is they said that slashing carbon emissions by saving resources should become a priority across government. And they also echoed the AJ's demands to overturn the existing VAT system, which favours demolition. What is it about the status quo around demolition that is proving so difficult to shake off, even in the face of such growing demands on the government? And what sort of pressure might clinch the sort of policy changes everyone seems to be calling for now? So I'll start by explaining what we mean by the VAT system favouring demolition. In the UK currently, if you're a client which is paying for work to refurbish or retrofit or extend your property, then you also have to pay the government an additional 20% of that cost in value-added tax, VAT. Um, the VAT rates for new build construction are a bit more complicated, but essentially a great deal of new build construction comes with no VAT. So therefore there is an incentive to demolish and rebuild a building rather than reuse it. Um, to be honest, I don't know how this VAT discrepancy came about, but we can talk about why the government is not changing it. So. The headline reason they are giving is because getting rid of VAT on retrofit would cost money. They say it would cost around three billion pounds a year, um, which it currently creates. The next question is, why couldn't you equal out the VAT on retrofit work and new builds? So maybe so they both pay 10% or something like that. Um, this suggestion was actually made by Duncan Wilson, the chief executive of Historic England, who also thinks this discrepancy is, I quote, crazy. Um, but as far as I know, the government haven't addressed this. I think what they would say is that this could affect the number of new homes if we raised VAT on new builds. 
Um, but if you really want my honest opinion, Merlin, um, and this is not necessarily an AJ opinion, but I'm worried to do it. it I'm worried that it is to do with Conservative Party donors. Last week, you spoke on the show about how the Conservative Party has received a fifth of its donations in the last decade from developers and major landowners. Developers earn more money from demolition and rebuilding, as it's more work. And landowners also have more to gain from new builds, rather than kind of adding density to existing structures. And I should also point out, you know, I have no proof of any wrongdoing, but it does worry me that JCB, which is a big manufacturer of construction and in particular demolition equipment, is also a major donor to the Tory party, having handed them about 10 million quid in the past decade. Our final story covered in the AJ is all to do with UNESCO's shock decision to strip Liverpool's waterfront of its prized World Heritage Site status due to irreversible damage caused by new development. The body's World Heritage Committee announced that it had passed a decision to delete Liverpool from the list following a secret ballot. It follows a recent UNESCO report which said schemes like the Chapman-Taylor master-planned £5.5 billion Liverpool Waters and Everton Football Club's new stadium, originally designed by MICE Architects, had caused serious deterioration of the heritage site. Delegates were initially split on whether to delete Liverpool's status or delay a decision for another year, but eventually voted 13 votes to 5 in favour of the drastic move. Liverpool will now lose the title awarded in 2004 in recognition of its supreme example of a commercial port and buildings such as the Grade 2 star listed Three Graces on the waterfront. The waterfront was one of 27 sites across the UK inscribed on the UNESCO World Heritage List for Cultural Value. Others include Georgian Bath, John Vanbrugh's Blenheim Palace and Edinburgh's Old and New Towns. London is itself home to four UNESCO World Heritage Sites, Maritime Greenwich, the Palace of Westminster, the Tower of London and Kew Gardens. The World Heritage Committee's surprise recommendation came after it said Liverpool had failed to comply with its repeated requests to protect the site. In 2012, after the Council approved the Liverpool Waters scheme, the Council was placed on the In Danger Register and UNESCO issued repeated warnings that its status was under threat from overdevelopment. The move by the Paris-based UN agency, which exists to promote world peace and security through international cooperation in education, the sciences and culture, is not the first time it has intervened in UK development matters. In London, for example, UNESCO spoke out about plans by David Chipperfield Architects to redevelop Elizabeth House in Waterloo, and also against David Adjaye's proposals for a Holocaust memorial in Victoria Tower Gardens. In both instances, this was due to the development's proximity to the Palace of Westminster. So, Will, what's this all about? Liverpool's new mayor, Joanne Anderson, said she was hugely disappointed and concerned by the decision, and would be looking to appeal. She said, quote, Our World Heritage Site has never been in better condition, having benefited from hundreds of millions of pounds of investment across dozens of listed buildings and the public realm, adding, I find it incomprehensible that UNESCO would rather Bramley Moor Dock, that's the site of the Everton Stadium, would remain a derelict wasteland rather than making a positive contribution to the city's future and that of its residents. Has Anderson got a point here? And why is it so common for people to see anything new as a threat to heritage? 
Well, the logic of Mayor Anderson is, is sound, I think. Cities should be for living in and not for being preserved as a museum for tourists. You know, beauty is great, but above all, cities should be humane and hospitable for the people that live in them. Uh, people need homes, they need jobs. So you can't just leave a collection of historic buildings and kind of justify um, poverty through doing that. But that's not necessarily what's happened in Liverpool. Um, whether the, the place is actually better off now, I'm not sure. But I, I do think sometimes heritage concerns should be given a bit more status. So you mentioned the four World Heritage Sites in London. Uh, Tower of London in particular has been kind of bombarded by skyscrapers behind it. You know, it's sort of literally overshadowed by all these towers that keep popping up. And I think undoubtedly it has had an effect on its kind of visual power and importance as a remarkable historic building, um, particularly when sort of viewed north from um, Tower Bridge. Uh, you know, the tulip, which the government is going to rule on in September or by September, could see yet another, this time even sillier, skyscraper pop up behind it. So I think our planning system works on balancing all the pros and cons of a development against each other and just ask that a development has a net beneficial effect. Um, but, you know, bringing it sort of round to London, in the case of London, I'm not sure the right decisions are being made. I think maybe the investment billions of pounds sounds good, but as we've talked about before, I'm not sure we need these kind of super scale carbon creating glass boxes so we can have more luxury offices. Um, so I, I do think something to balance it is a bit off. Will, it's been an immense pleasure to have you once again on The Lundown. You're a true friend of the show. Hope you can join us again in the future too. Uh, where should listeners um, go to keep up to speed on all the things you're writing? Listeners should go to architectsjournal.co.uk. Uh, where they can also subscribe to the magazine if they would like to. And, and, and your socials? Uh, Twitter, at Willing9. Thank you very much and um, looking forward to having you on the show again soon. Thank you, Merlin. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.